Or that the kids didn't wear their sailor suits for very long, did they? They threw juice boxes on the way home, and then somehow your son cut his sister's hair, and then one of them turned 13, right? And all of a sudden, the sailor suit picture is just a, just a memory. Or that family vacation wasn't all that perfect. You locked your car, your keys in your car, Mobile, Alabama. Your husband backed over the Christmas presents, and your son tells you he'd rather be skiing with somebody else's family, right? We all have realized that those perfect moments, right, aren't so perfect, but... But really what's amazing about those, those memories is that they're messy and they're ugly, but they're wonderful all at the same time. Because somewhere sandwiched, sandwiched between the argument over where we're going to go to lunch and you're not leaving the house dressed like that young lady, is this amazing moment. It's that, that hug, that look, that, that kiss, that feeling, that moment, that time, that season that is just, it just makes it all work. You know, the people in Scripture that we see in the Bible really lived in a similar fashion. They lived in a similar fashion because they weren't perfect. I mean, these were ordinary, messed up, flawed, unschooled people that God used to do pretty amazing things, to really turn the world upside down. And we, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we place these people as unattainable. Because the reality is they were a lot like you and, and me. They, they really lived in a way that was somewhat messy, and in between their, their moments of really spiritually being faithful were moments of, of, of balls that were dropped and things that fell through and times that I denied and struggle points and struggle points. But somewhere in the middle of all that was this moment um, where God moved people to go from the ordinary to the extraordinary. Now, I've heard a, a dozen plus sermons in my life on how God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, right? And, and there is, that is very true. Don't get me wrong. But I tend to think a little bit differently because I don't really think it's the things that God does that are extraordinary. I mean, they are, of course, but that's not really what, what is amazing to me because I believe God can, can do extraordinary things. But what's really amazing to me is the fact that, that God chooses to use messed up people, right, flawed, broken people to do his calling, his things, to move in his kingdom. And to me, that is what is extraordinary. It's not what gets accomplished, but it's the fact that God uses people that are a mess to accomplish them. See, because there's nothing ordinary about that moment. That when God takes someone like, like you, or God takes someone like me, or God takes someone like Peter, or some unschooled Nazareth fisherman, and he uses them to turn the world upside down, there's nothing ordinary about that moment. And it sure is beyond just one extraordinary thing, accomplishment, the actual extraordinary thing is that God does something with people like you and people like me. And so over the next four weeks, what we're going to be looking at is scripture. Is God using messed up, flawed, broken people to do things that turn the world upside down? Because when God chooses to use people like that, there's nothing ordinary about how we're called to live. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring this little series called Nothing Ordinary. Just the idea that God would use us and move us and call us to a life that is really beyond ordinary, that there's nothing ordinary about. Whether it's 2,000 years ago or whether it was yesterday afternoon, God is calling us to live lives in which there is nothing ordinary. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at, at two entirely different scenarios. We're going to be taking a look at a scenario in, in first century Jerusalem with people that we've heard of, a guy by the name of Peter and a guy by the name of John. And we're going to look at a scenario about how the Holy Spirit used and empowered them to literally turn the known world upside down. And we're going to look at someone you haven't heard of. It takes place in 21st century New York City, a girl by the name of Lindsay. And we're going to look at how God used her to turn her world upside down. And so over the next four weeks, this is what we're going to be doing. 
We're going to be unpacking how God can use messed up, flawed, broken people with all kinds of issues and struggles to impact the world. And that when God empowers us and uses us, there's nothing ordinary about the life we are called to live. This morning we're going to be in the book of Acts chapter 3. So if you've got a Bible, there's one sitting beside you, go ahead and turn to it. We're actually going to be in chapters 3 and 4 and I'm going to, for the sake of time, read some and paraphrase some and kind of hop around a little bit probably. So, But if you want to go ahead and find it, um, Acts chapter 3 is where we are going to be this morning. Um, looking at one of my all-time favorite pieces of text, I know every single week I say that, but this really is, I'm not lying this time, so um, awesome, awesome story. So Acts chapter 3, and before we open God's word together, let's just, let's take a moment and pray. God, we thank you for the stillness of this moment to gather in front of your word. Father, we thank you that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and that, God, your, your, your truth is, is a living and active, and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And, God, we are, are blessed beyond belief to be able to gather in your presence this morning and, and hear from you. So, God, empower our hearts and speak to us. Lord, we know that we can't discover any truth apart from you revealing it to us. Take just a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning, to, to open your spiritual eyes, if you will. Um, and reveal himself to you. Just pray for yourself this morning. And pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. Just pray uh, that God would move in them. Just be in the habit of, as I say, pray for, praying for other people. Jesus, we turn this entire morning over to you, and we ask you to teach our souls and hearts. And we ask this in your holy and perfect name. Amen. So Acts chapter 3, before we read it, let me just catch you up real briefly on where we are in history. Okay, Acts chapter 3. Jesus has since been crucified. He has been raised from the dead, and he has made all these resurrection appearances. In fact, his last resurrection appearance were to the gathered group of believers, just a little bit over a hundred of them in this upper room, and a really significant thing takes place. The, they they kind of see Jesus ascend into heaven, and then they just kind of wait. And they're waiting for the promised Holy Spirit, and as they wait and as they gather over the period of a couple of days and weeks, the Holy Spirit shows up on Pentecost, and some amazing things begin to happen. The apostles are literally empowered to be able to speak in other languages, and they go out into the streets, and God adds 3,000 to their number, and really what we're beginning to see is the, the birth of the church. So the birth of the church takes place in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 as we see this sort of explosion of, of people coming to know Jesus in a very real way. And Acts chapter 3 is sort of the, the launching point of the church in the world. It's the place where they begin to live as the body of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and they begin to see the world differently because Jesus is no longer standing in their presence, but now they are guided by the Holy Spirit, carrying out the mission of Christ in the world. They are the church. And the church has been launched into the world. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 3 and 4 this morning. And just by way of starting off, I want to read the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 3. Um, so here's, here's where we're starting. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon, and a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. 
Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I give you I give in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the hand, he helped him up, and he instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. And then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Let's look at verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all people were astonished and came running to them in this place called Solomon's colonnade so the church has been born it is birthed and it is living and active it is carrying out the mission of Christ guided by the Holy Spirit in the world and Peter and John go to the temple courts just like Jesus did when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem he went straight to the temple courts and he just began to teach people and so what do Peter and John do well they pick up in Jesus footsteps and they basically do the same thing they go to the temple courts to teach because that's where people gathered and so Peter and John on their way to the temple courts they come across this beggar this crippled man who laid there at the gate almost on the entry point to the temple courts this gate called beautiful and and literally it was was a pretty smart thing to do for this man because each day at the time of prayer which took place at five different times people the religious had to walk through this gate in order to get to the temple So on their way, they had to pass by this crippled person, and the law called them to take care of the poor, right? So he's thinking, if I wait outside the temple, I'm going to get an influx of really religious people, and surely they're going to give me money. And it was actually a pretty good strategy. I mean, this beggar had nothing else to do. He could not work. He was an outcast in society, and so he just every day waited there. So he's gathered at the gate, and Peter and John come along, and they see this crippled beggar literally laying there on his mat at this gate. And he's asking people for money, but he's careful not to look at them in the eye, because as an outcast, as a cripple, he was considered unclean, and you did not lock eyes with someone who was unclean. And so he was careful not to make eye contact, and he just asked people for money as they went by. And and Peter and John got to that place, and this beggar asked them for money, and they stopped. And they they look at him and they say, look at us. And so this beggar looks up and he looks into the eyes of Peter and John as they look at him and they say, you know, he's thinking he's going to get something from him. And they say to him, they say, look, silver and gold we don't have. But what we do have, we we give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. And then it says that Peter reached down and he takes his hand. And he stands him up. And it said instantly the man's ankles and legs became strong. And he followed them into the temple courts, jumping and praising God. And people were astonished. In fact, they came running from all over because they heard that this man, that every day they walked to the temple courts, five times a day, they passed this same guy. They just heard that he was walking and jumping and dancing in the temple courts. And they were astonished. And they ran to come find where Peter and John were. Now what's amazing about this picture for me is, is, is really beyond the miracle itself. Because of course the miracle itself is, is amazing. But really what's amazing to me is, is beyond that. Okay? Because this is Peter and John. Both of them are fishermen from Nazareth. They are unschooled. They are ordinary. They are just guys. Who Jesus called out of their lives and invited them to follow him. And then Jesus had literally spent so much time with them that they began to see the world the way that Jesus did. Now think about this for a moment. Every day, five times a day, the religious walk straight past this person, throwing a few coins here, a few coins there. But what would Jesus have done? I mean, if you imagine Jesus in this scenario, what does he do? All through scripture, we see Jesus stopping and interacting with a people that no one else would spend time with. 
And so what do Peter and John do? Well, they do all that they know, which is to live like Christ. They saw the world the way Jesus saw the world. So instead of seeing a need for silver or gold, instead of seeing a need to get to the temple and just teach the people they need to hear, they stop and they pay attention to this man that no one else would pay attention to. And the first thing they did is astonishing. They looked at him, which broke all cultural boundaries and all cultural norms, right? But they looked right at him. And this is how we saw Jesus live. He lived in this sort of interpersonal, relational, radical way. They looked people in the eyes and, and touched their deficiencies and, and put their hands in the places where, where no one else would put their hands. But they looked at him straight in the eye. They, they basically humanized him. You know, there's something amazing about catching someone's eye, isn't there? I mean, even, even if you think for a moment about that own, your own awkward scenario with it, maybe that person that, that, that sits on the corner of, of Penn and the Turnpike or wherever you are, and you, you, you have that moment where if you just don't lock eyes, right, then, then you don't feel bad or you don't feel like you should do something or you have that moment. But when you, when you catch that moment or when you learn someone's name like that, it, it humanizes not only that person but the entire situation. So they stop and they say, look at us and they're looking at this guy in the eyes and they say look they spoke truth they said look we can't give you money we don't have any but we can give you we can give you in the name of Jesus and they literally healed him but but Peter reaches down and he touches this guy which is remarkable in amongst itself I mean no one would touch him they carried him by a mat in their culture he was essentially unclean because they believed that his sin or his parents sin caused that Yet they touched him, and then he began to jump and dance, and he followed them into the temple courts, which I think is such a cool picture. I mean, if you can imagine this crippled guy, this broken, this unclean person, going into the heart of where the religious gather, and jumping and dancing and praising God, and leaning, in verse 11, all over Peter and John, as they're explaining to people what happens, right? Peter and John spent time with Jesus, and they saw the world differently. See, what's remarkable to me is not so much the miracle, the thing that God did, but the people that God used to do it. Ordinary fishermen, broken people. Peter, who we know denied Jesus and was so overly passionate, overly zealous, that he got himself in all kinds of trouble. And John, just a fisherman, uneducated, unschooled, seeing the world through the eyes of, of Jesus. So people come running from all over. All right, and they're all gathered around, they're listening, and, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And this, this crippled person now healed is jumping and dancing and doing all this stuff. And Peter, in the end of chapter 3, really the whole last part of chapter 3, kind of launches into this really amazing speech, this gospel presentation where he says, look, what are you so amazed about? And he begins to explain from the prophets all the way to the person of Jesus why this took place. And the fact that they had set up Jesus himself to be crucified and that the power to heal this man was not done through them, but was done because of Jesus. Well, the religious leaders inside the temple were starting to get furious. I mean, they were so mad that these guys, these people, were preaching Jesus as the resurrection, as the life, right? And the people were starting to believe. And in fact, we see another thousand or two added their number in the middle of chapter 3. People are believing. And the religious leaders come over and they, they seize Peter and John. And they say, you can't talk that way. And they grab them and they put them in jail. Because it's evening and, and they can't put them on trial until the next morning. And so they throw Peter and John into jail at the end of chapter 3. And then they assemble this incredible religious court filled with like 
the most educated and the most powerful religious leaders. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest, and they all gathered. Because this Jesus thing was really a problem for them because it threatened their very way of life. And here were these two guys standing in the middle of the temple, healing people and proclaiming Jesus as the resurrection from the dead. And they were livid. And so that next morning, they get up and they assemble this court and they march these two men in front of it. These two uneducated, ordinary fishermen, right, from Nazareth, in front of the most educated, assembled religious court. And they ask him an incredibly loaded question. And they just say, by whose name or in what authority have you done this, right? And this is what Peter says. Verse 5, we'll look at just a few verses. The next day the rulers and the elders, chapter 4, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, the other men, the high priest's family, they were all gathered, right? And then asked Peter and John, they had them brought before him, and they asked him this question, by what power or what name did you do this? And this is Peter's response. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called on account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then this and you, then hear this and know this, all you people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the stat capstone. Look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So check this out. So they gather and they put him on trial and they ask him this question, whose authority? And Peter looks at him and he says this, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says this, he goes, listen, if you're putting us on trial because this crippled man was healed, then hear me say this, he was healed by the power of Jesus, who you crucified, right? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They were basically saying and signing their own death warrant. They were basically saying, this is Jesus, who you crucified, who gave us the power and who healed this man. And he is the only answer for salvation. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Well, I mean, this was going to send these chief priests and this, this religious court into a tailspin. But you've got to imagine the courage that it took for Peter to be able to speak these words. I mean, imagine that the most... The most intimidating situation you've ever been in. Maybe it was a job interview or maybe it was, you know, something you did wrong. Or maybe you were facing your own legal battles or whatever. And there was a court of people waiting to try you, judge you, put you on trial. And you knew you didn't know as much as they did. And you knew that your education was never going to hold up or, or whatever. You knew that you were in a scenario that was incredibly anxiety producing. And you were fearful. Maybe you were wrongly accused, whatever. Multiply that times about five and imagine John and Peter for their very, on trial for their very lives. Very lives. And they speak with this courage beyond measure. I mean literally just saying, look, it's about Jesus. So the high priests and the, this council didn't know what to do. So they sent them back into jail and they kind of get together a little bit and they go, what are we going to do? It's obvious that this man has been healed. There is nothing we can do about that. He's running and he's still jumping around. He's all excited and praising God. He's running around the temple. We cannot fix that. What do we do? And they had this little argument amongst themselves going, well, I don't know. What do you think we should do? Well, I don't know. I mean, they, you know, they could not control it. And so look what they do. They call them back in, okay? 
And this is, well, before they call them back in, this is what they say, verse 13. They saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men and took note that they had been with Jesus. Now, notice this. They didn't take note that Peter had a great speech. They didn't take note that the guy had been healed. They didn't take note of any of those things. They took note that these guys, these ordinary, unschooled, uneducated fishermen from Nazareth had been with Jesus. All right? So they called them back in. Right? And there's nothing else they can do. And they called them back into verse 18 and they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So they call them back in and they go, listen, we command you not to speak or teach in Jesus' name. But Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Peter and John's only response was this, look. You've got to decide for yourself what's right. We should obey you or, or God. But we just can't help talking about it. We can't help talking about what we've seen and heard. We've been with Jesus. It's a, such an amazing picture when you think about it for a moment. These, these guys, these fishermen, I mean, these unschooled people who had spent time with Jesus, who had surrendered their hearts to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit had filled with power, are living lives beyond the ordinary. That there's nothing ordinary about the way they're called to live. They are seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. They no longer see just a crippled person, but they see a heart that is crying for truth. And they're willing to speak beyond all, kind of beyond all wisdom, really. With great courage to testify to what they've seen and heard. Even if it cost them their very lives. You see, there's nothing ordinary about this moment. It wasn't what God did, but who God was using. See, the reality for you and I is that I believe that God, the creator of the world, the God that made the stars and the trees, the God that breathed life into your very lungs, is calling you to live a life that is beyond what you know. That when we surrender in our hearts and our lives to Jesus, we begin to see the world through his eyes, and we begin to have a desire to live beyond conventional wisdom. With courage that says, look, I just can't help but talking about the God that has so radically changed me. Now, most of us are sitting here going, yeah, but, I mean, that's Peter and John, Trev, really. I mean, in my world where I live today, how do I begin to live that out? I want to introduce you to a girl named Lindsay. Take a look at this video as we look about how this literally transfers from first century Jerusalem to 21st century New York City. When I first moved to New York City, I thought I knew why I was coming here. It was going to be an adventure. I had my own agenda. I had no idea how much I would fall in love with the kids of the city and how much they would teach me about myself and change my life. I treasure my morning commutes on the subway. It's my time. Sometimes it's my only time with God. In those moments, I know his love for me, and I know that that's going to carry on throughout my day, and I know it's going to help me to do my job well. The Bronx is one of the toughest neighborhoods in the country. 
75% of the people live below the poverty line. And where there's poverty, of course, there's going to be violence and sadness and strife, ugliness. Right in the middle of the Bronx is Middle School 223, where I'm a reading and writing teacher to sixth graders. It's where I spend my days every day. A lot of our kids at our school go home to shelters. They go home to homes where they are in charge. They see people get shot in front of their apartment door. Life has not been easy for them or kind to them. Morning. Good morning. Hey guys. Thanks for coming in quietly. Many of my students haven't been loved well. They've been abandoned. They've been promised things that have never come. They've been promised relationships with their fathers or mothers that have never happened. And so they're just worn. They're weathered. And they don't trust love. On the first day of school, the first thing that I tell them is, I've been thinking about you all summer. Like, I love you already. You may not believe this, but you can't earn my love. You could make straight A's all year and have perfect behavior all year or you can get detention three times a week and I'm gonna love you the same and then I spend all year trying to prove it so I want you to think back to Monday we chose that one personal narrative that we're gonna publish and celebrate and put out there to the world who am I as a person what do I really want people to know about who I am? Well, it wasn't until recently that I realized that God had been preparing me for this job, for these kids at the school right now. I grew up in Georgia, mostly at my grandmother's house because my mom and dad were divorced. And then when my dad got married, I felt like I wasn't good enough. He, he wanted me to be perfect. I just wasn't good enough anymore. But I know I don't need other people to say I'm okay anymore. I did that my whole life, and I think I'm finally done. So maybe now I can just be Lindsay, and if I make mistakes, then oh well. I'm not only as good as what I do. Growing up, and especially now, even as an adult, I still long for that love and acceptance, and God has shown that to me. And given that to me so that I can go and give these kids the same love and acceptance that they have always wanted to. Over time, I really do believe this classroom becomes a safe haven for them, a place where they feel accepted and they know they're going to be safe and it's comfortable. I think God loves these kids so much, more than I could ever hope to love them. I think he wants them to rest and to be happy. I think he wants to heal their hearts. Every day they walk out of my classroom. And at the end of the year, they walk out of my classroom forever. It's so hard. It's hard not knowing what lies ahead for them or what type of choices they'll make and I just have to rest. I've done everything I could do. I've loved them the best that I can. And my hope is that they'll figure out 
that God loves them so much more than I ever could.